Rachel Daly is a striker. The end. The Koi Gig Pod on OTB Sports. She's got great passing range. She scores goals. She's great in the air. Brilliant in the air. Yeah. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. To Qatar, I'm delighted to say Gavin Cooney of the 42 is with us this morning. Uh, are you in Doha? Is is it? Can you be anywhere other than Doha, really, in Qatar if you're covering the World Cup? You can be out in a canvas tent in the desert. Uh, mercifully, uh, FIBA didn't impose that on the media, so I am. I am somewhere in Doha. It's a bit of a building site around our hotel. The, the Doha Sports Stadium is beside us, which we. Uh, which I've learned is, was the first real sports stadium in Doha. And is, is, in some slightly on-the-nose metaphors, the first games of football in Qatar were played on sand with the lines for the pitch demarked in oil. So, I mean, that's a nice little metaphor for what this World Cup has become. But that was meant to be developed for this World Cup and they abandoned it. And they abandoned it in a very true sense. So our hotel rises out of rubble around it. But it's look, it's a pretty good location. It's 20 minutes from the metro on which I'm, I'm spending my life out here. And uh, by all accounts, the metro is one of those actual legacy things that uh, the people of Doha will have that has been built for the World Cup and seems pretty good. Yeah, no, it, it just, I mean, the trains run on time, Ger. Um, the, uh, it, there's a metro going every three minutes. They've even opened up the first-class carriage for the purpose of the World Cup. They will close that um, after everyone moves on and, and segre- the, that um, economic, well, is it economic? Not really. Segregation here at, at, at work in Qatar will, will, come into, uh, will come into force once again. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about football so far. Um, the Iranian fans were impressive so far uh, of the the various fan groups that we've seen. Obviously, Saudi Arabian fans. Um, well, they were they were uh, loud of voice in the first game. And um, what were the Iranian fans actually like in person? It was amazing. I was at the Wales game, and it was just one of the most amazing occasions I've ever had the privilege to be at. My seat in the press box was right up in the back right hand corner. Um, one of the consequences of being here as an Irish journalist is you don't exactly get the best seats. But as it turns out. This was the best seat because I was closest to the Iranian fans and their, uh, their, the, the atmosphere that they generate and the link that they have with their team is one of the main stories of this World Cup so far. I mean, they, they were so loud throughout. I mean, Wales, uh, the first half of that game was an absolute dog of a game. It was another of these classically terrible nil-nil draws that we've seen at this World Cup. But you wouldn't know it from the intensity of the, intensity of the atmosphere that the Iranian fans had produced. And then what better way is there to win a game than strike from the edge of the box in the 99th minute? And then uh, when everyone is shrieking in disbelief at just how good this feels, tag on another goal in the 101st minute to confirm that, yes, this is very real and you should enjoy it for all it's worth. But obviously the, the, the big story about Iran is not really linked to the football at all. I mean, it's just been this astonishing story. Um, whereby the Iranian players, obviously, they lined up against England on Monday, refused to sing the anthem, the national anthem. National anthem is not necessarily indicative of Iran as a country, but it is in, um, an emblem of, of the ruling regime, which is now uh, cracking down so brutally on protests back in Iran. It, the anthem was rewritten after the revolution in 1979. And the players silently disavowed it and the, and the uh, fans in the crowd uh, very loudly disavowed it by jeering it. Um, then, like, what kind of pressure was put on the Iranian players in the days that followed? Mehdi Taremi, the striker, insisted none. But then a former Iranian international was arrested uh, the night, uh, the day before the game against Wales for allegedly sp- spreading you know, propaganda. Um, so as a result, the players did uh, did line up and did sing the anthem this time, but they did it with, you know, 
absolutely no zeal and absolutely no passion. They they mouthed it kind of lazily. Um, and then you th- this incredible moment among the crowd where the crowd initially, um, you know, everyone is everyone is watching the big screen to see what the Iranian players are going to do. And then the, the fans realize that, yes, they're singing, but they're, they look to be doing it. So under some level of duress. So then there was this, this, this close up shot of this man. I mean, maybe this came across in the TV coverage back home as well of this man just breaking down in tears uncontrollably in a kind of, you know, despair. It's just, I've never seen despair so obviously blatant on a man's face. Uh, and then it ended in tears as well with Carlos Kairaj's, uh, blue eyes twinkling as, uh, as Iran, uh, Iran won playing under the most extraordinary pressure. It's an amazing story. And then you've got this. Uh, just talking to a couple of Iranian journalists over here, that you've got this very different thing going on between how the team are viewed back home and how the team are viewed back here. I mean, there are protesters back home who are now risking their life uh, for the sake of change in their own country. who believe that the players should be doing more. Now, the Iranian state television is not showing the close-up shots of the of the players singing or not singing the anthem. They cut to the big tactical camera up in the sky um, in, on which the players look like ants below. But then the, the fans who have travelled over here are aware of the of the risks that the players have taken and how the players have spoken out um, and, and I was going to say voice their protest. They voice their protest by not engaging their voices at all. And so it's just it's this extraordinary story. And now we're we're heading to uh, the final group game against the USA. There's more uh, there's more uh, political skirmishes off the pitch. Uh, The USA have removed the emblem of the regime from the Iranian flag on social media posts. The Iranian FA have have called for the USA to be kicked out of the tournament as a result. That won't happen. But uh, that I was initially going to do England, Wales, but I've swapped to uh, uh, USA, Iran just because Iran are one of the most amazing, most amazing, most remarkable stories of this World Cup so far. Yeah, it feels like the most significant. Uh, like those those national anthem moments, both but, uh, before both games, just feels like one of the legacy things we'll be talking about out of the, outside of this World Cup, Gavin. And like the, Carlos Kiraj as well, taking to Twitter remarkably to refute Jurgen Klinsmann was was another aspect of this, which just makes Iran even more interesting. Yeah, it's just another little. Uh, it's just another little um, postscript to this story, isn't it? I mean, Klinsman was on BBC talking about gamesmanship. Now, I was at the game, like the referee was a real let it flow merchant. Um, and I, I didn't come away from it thinking, God, Iran were, were cynical and, uh, and were, went over the line there. But the BBC evidently believed that they did. And, and Klinsman spoke of how this is, you know, Iranian, Iran's culture to work the referee over this uh, montage of, of fouls that weren't given. I mean, they didn't include in that same montage the bit where the Wales goalkeeper kicked Mediterranean in the face and was given a yellow card for it, um, which was then overturned uh, and given red on, on VAR. So Kerouge naturally went after Klinsman on this one in a kind of a real kind of M&M, Dear Stan style uh, Twitter thread. Uh, Dear Jürgen, inv- inviting him in to, uh, to see what the Iranian culture is really like by visiting the team hotel and obviously calling him for him in, in a nice little mic drop at the end to resign from his position on the FIFA Technical Committee for this World Cup. Um, it, like it's it's a it's a bit of a sideshow. Klinsman's main problem was that he then started to compare them to all of the other countries that he had ever played against when he was the USA manager, and suddenly it's like a massive lumping in of of countries who are non European, non traditional football powers, and it's like ah, they're all the same. Which you know, yeah, yeah. curious little undertones there bubbling up. Which, yeah, um, totally. And like, I mean, Klinsman is now, I mean, he's a man of the US now, uh, these days. Like, he's obviously a failure of a USA manager and he, he lives there now. So 
that uh, I, I mean, I wonder if Carroll would have said the same and taken to Twitter had the USA not been the next game. I'm not so sure about that. Kiraj is a wily character in his own right, but uh, yeah, another little uh, subplot for... Uh, well, Kiraj gets um, to go on the attack against somebody and then it's no longer the conversation about the politics and, and uh, the anthems and all that kind of stuff, so... Yeah, I mean, that that is a very good point here. I, I hadn't really considered that. I'm going to do Kiraj's press conference later today, so we'll see. I still think that the anthems and just the sheer weight of that story will still... Uh, mean it dominates the press conference to an extent. He, I think, is he has struggled somewhat under the weight of these questions, and I don't blame him. He has to he's had to play a very difficult role. I mean, he's to he's to balance a number of uh, of strong voices against each other. You know, I mean, he uh, he initially criticised the fans um, after the game on England uh, against after the England game, saying that they weren't welcome because he interpreted their boos of the anthem as boos of the players. Now that wasn't accurate. Maybe he's being willfully inaccurate there just to get an answer out. He also snapped at a BBC journalist who asked him, talking about, "Oh, you, sh- you should ask your prime minister about Afghanistan or something along those lines." Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sometimes people who are uh, doing one job aren't good at answering questions about uh, outside influences or the rest of the world. Um, Kiros is an interesting, an interesting character. Like, um, I'd, look, I'd, I, is, is Roy Keane doing their next game? That that would be interesting. Uh, okay, so apart from that, what um, what was the other thing that we wanted to talk to you about? Oh, the Germany Spain game, right? Um, mm. The importance of having an actual striker, uh, but no one trusting their strikers at the moment. This this is kind of a theme in world football where if you have a striker, things can go very very well for you deep into the tournament if, if Harry Kane starts playing well for example for England that's going to be the difference between them drawing a lot of games nil all and uh, maybe occasionally winning Kylian Mbappe is obviously you know not bad but um, it took the substitute strikers to, to swing this game and to score some goals so what, what were your takeaways from that game? Yeah I really enjoyed this game it was just another like massive privilege to be at it was this it felt like a really high stakes late knockout game Spain were much the better side but Germany Germany were pretty resolute and it was almost, you know, Spain and Germany are the two great ideologues of our time. You know, one gave us tiki-taka and the other gave us gag and pressing. And like the first hour of this game kind of felt like they were both debating their ideas. Like uh, who was it on, on Dick Cavett? It was like Gore Vidal against uh, a William Buckley. Sorry, I almost said FX Buckley, but I think he's the <laughs> Dublin Bushes. Um, but so this is like a, this is like really like impressive flourish of a university debate between these two philosophies, and it ended in a kind of a deadlock. So some of Spain's triangles and passing was just an absolute joy to watch, but they just lacked that bit of a killer touch. And it was the same with Germany; they had their counter-attacking threat, and they pressed pretty well, um, and they created chances from it, like Joshua Kimmich winning the ball back off Pedri on the edge of the box. His shot was, was blocked by Unai Simon. And then, like, the two great philosophers of our time were like, okay, it's time for This is a new age, and it's a new age, the big lad up top. So, uh, first Luis Enrique sent for Alvaro, Alvaro Morata. And then Spain had been exploiting that left side, Germany's right side all night. They'd been trying to get in behind Tilo Kehrer, but it took Morata with a finishing touch uh, to put something on the scoreboard. Brilliant finish, first-time finish. Morata's always, Morata is always better when he doesn't have time to think about what he has to do. He's very instinctive. It's when he has a couple of, couple of minutes or a couple of seconds to think he, he struggles. And then Hansi Flick sent for Nicholas Fulkberg, um, or Fulkrug, should I say. Uh, he, he, along with Leroy Sane, Sane was excellent. Um, and a, uh, Sane, there was this frequent move from Germany where Sane used to skate in from the right wing and Musiala used to r- run this kind of diagonal, almost crisscross run. Um, and Sane would pop it through to, uh, 
to Musiala. Uh, initially, the first time they did that, Musiala shot straight at Simon. The second time they did it, Musiala miscontrolled, uh, but it took full crook to lash the ball into the roof of the net. So Germany are still alive in the tournament. Spain looked much the better side. Um, and, like, you know, the, these are the two sides, you know. I, because they're such great, like, philosophers of, of football and um, all of the uh, all of the advanced ideas that they've given to us uh, in terms of tiki-taka and then gegen pressing. I mean, they're maybe the two most responsible for the erasure of the traditional number nine, but then you think about it, like, both have needed great strikers to win their World Cups, like David Villa for Spain, Miroslav Klose for Germany, and on the basis of last night, I think maybe both sides will need Morata uh, and Fulkrug. Uh, if they are gonna, if they are gonna go all the way here, uh, here in Qatar. Yeah, I don't think I don't know if anyone's ever said this before, but you can never write off the Germans uh, for sure. But um, like, <laughs> Costa Rica wrote it again. In, there you in go. Japan. Exactly. <laughs> Obviously, really enjoy that game. It was a great upset, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but what a massive disappointment to be going to Germany, Spain later in the day. Be like, oh, this is this is not quite uh, the everything on the line shootout that I thought it might be. Exactly. I saw saw a great tweet, uh, Gav, last night. Someone was saying, uh, "Look at me, I'm Spain. I can create two of the best." Feelers of all time and just have them respawn after they retire. Pathetic. Grow up. I mean, to see Gavi and Pedri up close and personal in a, in a match, it must have been quite special. Just to, uh, it's hard to believe how, how young they are. Is it 18 and 20, maybe? It's just re- remarkable. Mm. Yeah, I think Pedri was 20 on Friday, so they're not, can't write teenage midfield you anymore. <laughs> uh, they're fantastic. Like, my words. I mean, it's just, you know, it is another sport. I mean, they're always, their heads are always up. They're always scanning around. They're always moving and they always want the ball. Pedri, I mean, Gavi obviously hit the headlines the previous game for, was he the youngest goal scorer at the World Cup since Pele? Um, but Pedri, Pedri is the star of the show. I mean, what a player. He is, I know, uh, Shane, you mentioned respawning Xavi and Iniesta. They've also seemed to fuse them in, uh, in Pedri because <laughs> Pedri's got that, um, pop, pop, pop passing range of Xavi, but he can dribble by people like Iniesta used to do. He, uh, you know, these, these whirling feeds and he's just, like he doesn't have amazing acceleration, but whatever way he manages to, to throw his feet and, and shape his hips, he always manages to get away from whatever whatever burly German midfielder was trying to get close to him. So, no, uh, did they look like, you know, obviously injuries permitting and Barcelona did run Pedri into the ground after the previous Euros. Uh, they do look like, you know, Xavi and Iniesta, Mark II, and the two more most dominant uh, midfielders that we're going to see in Europe for the next few years. Speaking of midfielders, pre-tournaments, there was a belief that France's downfall was going to be a lack of guile in midfield. And uh, one way of getting around that is to put Griezmann in that three and to give him some responsibility for being the creative fulcrum and taking some pressure off whoever the other two are. And it looks like we know who the other two are going to be for the rest of the tournament. That front three is largely set in stone. Uh, certainly at a starting point at the moment, it seems anyway. So what is the influence of Griezmann? Is he up to this over the course of a full tournament, do you think? Yeah, I think he probably is. I mean, he hasn't been playing a lot at club level, so he does. He's lots of energy, um, and he looks pretty sharp. He's been, you know, the mad thing is, like, I mean, Kareem Benzema is the Ballon d'Or uh, holder, but his injury maybe there's a bit of a silver lining there for France because France and Deschamps made a bit of a mess at the Euros trying to accommodate Benzema and the team with Giroud up front and, and the structure, the kind of four-two-three-one they've got now. They've got such a lovely balance. Um, and, you know, Mbappe is obviously the star. It's not, you know, it's not another French Republic, but like for Mbappe to be the star, someone needs to be humble. And Griezmann is just his emblem of humility. I and mean, he's an outstanding player. Obviously, he's create, creative, um, in terms of creativity, we saw him to the fore, uh, against, uh, against Denmark. His was the through ball onto which Mbappe 
well, teleported really rather than sprinted to and was hauled down by Christensen. And then it was his unbelievable cross for the winning goal that Mbappe steered in from a yard out. But like when you're at the game, you're lucky enough to see like the impact that this guy has off the ball. He does all the running. I mean, he does the running. Uh, he's the domestique of this uh, of this front line. Uh, and he's so important. He's just his amazing ability to be in the right place at the right time, to win tackles um, and spoil counterattacks. If the right fullback goes forward, he'll sometimes shuffle in and, and cover that space. He's so intelligent. Um, and France, I have to say, they were the first team through to the knockout stages. They've been a lot better than I thought. You know, you thought maybe, uh, maybe they would struggle um, in the absence of Kante and Pogba, they're getting good performances out of Charmaine and, and even Rabio. Like Rabio to now looks like, you know, uh, some of his performance were, performances were as if the Deschamps just handed a pair of boots and a French jersey to the first barista he met down south of William Street. <laughs> but he's been really good at this tournament so far. Um, and it's all down to Mbappe. I mean, France, I think Deschamps has won the war with Mbappe's ego. I mean, Mbappe is still, obviously, he's not tracking back. I mean, he's simply... He simply doesn't defend. He's just renounced the whole thing. I mean, that's a bit crass for Kylian Mbappe. Um, and it's thrilling to see his his speed from a standing start. But Mbappe is also very committed to those standing starts. I mean, he literally just stands and watches play like Messi does when France don't have the ball. Uh, but at the same time, he's playing out wide left. He's also agreed to surrender set pieces and give them to Griezmann, who's his delivery is absolutely outstanding. Uh, and, you know, by, by surrendering himself a little bit for the team, not entirely, but a little bit, it means that Mbappe has been the, the best player this World Cup so far. And France, I have to say, it's looking pretty ominous, not only for the rest of the World Cup, uh, but also uh, the Republic of Ireland in March. Well, if they win, my hope is that there's somehow like a little hangover and, and they take their time to get going in the next campaign, knowing full well that no matter what happens, they're largely safe. Um, it's interesting though, right? The... The point about Griezmann, like, let's just remind ourselves that Griezmann was somebody who looked at LeBron James' decision and decided that when he was renewing his contract at Atletico Madrid, it, it, it deserved a similar treatment. That, like, he was so important. He was LeBron. He was signing a new contract with Atletico and the whole world needed to be put on tenterhooks. So to get him to be the humble domestique, as you've described it, is one mm-hmm. of the great managerial achievements. And if you put that, what he got Pogba to do in the last World Cup, maybe we should give... Didier Deschamps a little bit more credit than he gets yeah oh no totally I think so um, I was just listening you're completely right I was just listening to you uh, during the performance ranking saying that basically every national press hates their national manager it's kind of true true um, like Deschamps even said at his uh, at his pre-match press conference before his first game just if the media can just cut us some slack here I think the reason people don't really warm to Deschamps in a wider sense is that the team is more functional than it could be there's just no real gratuitousness to the team. Like you think it could be so much more thrilling than it actually is to watch. But in fairness, he's got an extremely difficult, uh, okay. He's got an amazing, like, okay. What in one sense you'll think, look at all the talent he has. What an easy manager, manager's job it is to do that. But these guys have gargantuan egos, you know, I mean, the, the build up to this tournament was dominated by a story in which one midfielder, uh, allegedly employed a witch doctor to hex his own striker, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's some difficult, uh, um, team spirit to engender there, but he's done, he's done a pretty good job. The structure of that team looks so good. I think Giroud and for Benzema makes a big, big difference. And I think, uh, Deschamps is one of these great international managers. Like he's obviously had success at club level. Um, what did he bring Monaco to a Champions League final? But he's, he's, he's so tailor made for international management because it's just about managing characters, finding the right system. 
to allow them to express themselves and just managing to police their egos and their own selfish selfish interests uh, as best he can. He did it well at the World Cup, didn't do it so well at the Euros, um, but uh, the uh, the evidence from the first two games here would suggest he's doing it pretty well at the World Cup so far. What about Southgate then? Um, you, you've swapped out the England-Wales Battle of Britain, uh, so you're going to miss Phil Foden erupting onto the World Cup stage with a hat-trick. What's yeah. Well, that's if he plays him. It seems uh, if you read some of the English press, I mean, uh, Philip Oden has been sacrificed to the altar of pragmatism here. Uh, it would appear. I mean, so I was obviously at England, uh, England USA on Friday night. Uh, one of the worst games of football I've ever watched. I had been to Uruguay South Korea the day before, a nil-nil draw that, for the first time in recorded World Cup history, didn't feature a single shot on target by either side. <laughs> but I enjoyed that game a lot more than I enjoyed England USA because England made absolutely no effort to win the game. And they were booed off at the end. And I know reading Wayne Rooney's column was kind of staggered by the boos. Obviously, that is uh, that is consistent with what he said coming off the pitch against Algeria in 2010. But if you're at the game and you realise how hard it is to get to that Albate Stadium in the middle of the desert and the amount of money that fans had spent, uh, you could understand why they booed because their team made absolutely no effort to win the game. Much of the criticism of Southgate is focused on the fact that Phil Foden didn't play. Um, but even if Foden came on, I don't think he would have made a difference because England's England just lacked such intensity and they were clearly like, a point here will do us. Uh, we're almost certainly through to the knockout stages. We can manage our pace here. You know, maybe they did it again at the Euros, they, in that drab draw against Scotland as well. Um, but obviously, you know, the, uh, there will, there will always be, um, there will always be like a, a call celebre among the, among the players on the sideline. It was Jack Grealish at the Euros. Uh, now it's Phil Foden. Obviously in Ireland, we can relate with Andy Reid and Stephen Ireland and, uh, and many, many. Yeah, and Wes Hoolan, most obviously. James McLean, um, James Coleman, various stages. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trapatoni, that's mostly Trapatoni's work, I have to yeah. say. Maybe, uh, maybe Trap has left that imprint in my mind. Um, and it turns out Southgate is just as defensive and negative as Trapatoni, by the way. I mean, uh, but, uh, yeah, so look, I, I just don't really get much of the criticism South going Southgate's way over not playing Foden. The bigger issue is how England approached that game. Look, Harry Kane said, look, we're in a good position to go and qualify. And maybe they did, but it was all very dull. And it was it was kind of consciously dull. Isn't the thing... I think the Royal it, Cup for... Sorry, go ahead. Isn't the thing about picking Foden, though, that it's a signifier to the rest of the team that we are actually trying to win this game and that you all need to be a little bit on your toes because there is another player who's just as good as you who I could find room for in the team. I, I the bloody Henderson's yeah, the first sub on. That's yeah, a, but yeah, but like that shows you, Jerry. Like, I mean, that would need Southgate to think that way. You know, that's Southgate thinking we need to bring Phil Foden on here to show you that uh, you, you need to get you need to get your arson gear. But he didn't want to do that. And like as you say, Shane, the first sub is uh, is Henderson. He came on at the same time as Grealish actually. Um, but that was a signifier. Just let's get more energy in midfield and let's just, you know, let's lock down this nil-nil. I mean, the issue is not necessarily not bringing on Phil Foden. The issue is Southgate's conservatism and almost like man- trying to pace England through this tournament. And it look, it, it worked at the last Euros, so maybe it'll work again, but it's quite drab and uninspiring to watch. And I'm, uh, I'm here for work. I can't imagine how more drab and uninspiring it is for the England fans who travel all this way and obviously can't really get a drink. So, I mean, the memories that they will, that are created have to be the ones on the pitch. Uh, and England uh, showing no uh, real interest in creating any against the USA on Friday. One of the things that has struck me increasingly uh, over the last while is as I start to like talk to people um, 
off the record about what it's like to be in changing rooms is that we don't really know what the dynamics are that um, so many of these people have like uh, card schools where massive amounts of money are being gambled. I don't know if that's still a case with the football team currently. Some of them are business partners and ventures that are either wildly successful or have tanked horribly. Some of them have introduced uh, tax advisors who have got them all to invest in uh, was it, wasn't it movie? Somehow there was a movie funding that has ended up in massive tax bills. We, 20 years later, we hear about like, oh, our Euro squad was riven apart by the fact that somebody was sleeping with somebody else's wife. And you're like, Fucking hell, we, don't, we, don't, we don't know the truth about what's going on. And sometimes I wonder when there's a team selection that isn't happening for a reason, is it down to character around the place? Is it down to like, you know, taking the remote control or something a bit more serious? And that these are the bits that, that the great managers manage properly and somehow manage to navigate a way through but it's frequently by the skin of their teeth like it's quite possible if Deschamps had pissed off the wrong player Mbappe or Griezmann that actually the France thing could have fallen apart like a house of cards but that somehow one conversation landed and everybody went yeah okay well, let's go with that yeah we'll, we'll do this and maybe maybe Phil Foden's not getting the team purely for football reasons. But there are other selections in, in uh, big countries where you're like, that guy should really be playing. But we just don't have a clue what's going on. And it's all, but it's also I like I can't speak to I don't know anything about the uh, you know any potential off field issues or character issues. I don't know about that. But it it comes back to the strength of the collective. You know, I mean I mean the most obvious thing in international football and the challenge for these top guys is you have so many good players at your disposal. How do you mold them into a functioning collective? And that's what Deschamps has done, um, and we've seen by playing Giroud rather than Benzema. Now obviously there was extenuating circumstances as to why Benzema was, wasn't at the last World Cup and he's injured from this one. But we saw him at the Euros and France were not quite as balanced. We're playing this back three, didn't really work. Mbappe was in the wrong position. Just nothing really worked. And Southgate said afterwards, the reason that Foden, um, the reason that Foden uh, didn't come on was like he would have played through the centre and he doesn't play there for his club. Now, I can understand that because Southgate doesn't, hasn't had a whole lot of time to work with the team ahead of this World Cup. I mean, no manager has, apart from the Qatar manager, and that didn't really work out very well for them. Uh, they only had six days preparation. So it's natural to, you know, to make the, to kind of mitigate against that by playing uh, players in the, in the position in which they're familiar with their clubs. But it all comes down to the strength of the collective. You know, over Benzema is the most obvious example. It's not about stacking your team with you know the eleven best players you can find because they might may not function. They might not function as a best collective. Like one of the most interesting things about football is that tension between the individual and the collective. Um, and it would seem that Southgate uh, Southgate seems that Foden is not in the best collective at England at the moment. Now Foden didn't exactly rip up trees when he was deemed in that collective um, at the Euros. Uh, who's on France's side of the draw? Pardon my ignorance here. Who are they likely to? England, the quarters. Oh, England, isn't it? Yeah. England and Argentina. It's they're all the. T- it's, I think it's just top half and bottom half. So uh, England and Argentina, I think, are the two big, two big names. But I, I, I don't know. I can't see France struggling against. Well, I don't. You never know. I mean, they gave away such a poor goal against Switzerland, but uh, from a set piece. But it's hard. It is hard to see them struggling against uh, against either of those teams. It's an interesting. Like I just can't see England. It. it the more you watch. Like the more you watch the game against the USA, you're thinking that like, this is not a team that can. It didn't feel like the England team of the Euros two years ago, Gavin. There was something like we all really? kind of got a bit. I thought it was very similar. No, but just it, in the go. Sorry, go ahead. It, just in terms of the lack of like, the lack of desire to go and win the game, you felt like that team in the Euros was was always trying to go be, play an attacking style of football. Like the Iran game, maybe we got carried away a little bit with it. Um, 
a six two win was was very impressive, and they were really really good that day. But I don't know. There's just there's just <clears throat> there feels like there's something. We we'll probably know more after the Wales game, I guess. Um, don't know. Um, like I mean, Wales are. I mean, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> Wales are not at their best here. I mean, they were so poor against Iran. This is a tournament too far for Ramsey, and maybe it is for Bale as well, mm. given um, his ma- lack of match fitness. So England could win that game, pulling up. I disagree when you, when we say we didn't see this from England or the Euros. Like this is what we have seen. They managed their way through that group, and they didn't play very spectacular football. But it, you know, Southgate is trying to do a similar thing to what Deschamps has done. You know, find the right structure, right collective, and just manage your pace throughout the tournament. Like there's no gratuitous, there's nothing over the top about. France, England are obviously trying to mimic the same way. And when you look at Argentina and the emotional psychodrama that they continue to be, that's probably the right way to go about things, ultimately. Yeah, no, there's, a, there's a case for that. So it's Brazil-France final, basically, if everybody plays to, to form, which, you know, I mean, the new Ronaldo documentary that we've been talking about. Um, were, were you a rematch? Mm, oh, yeah. No, it would be fantastic. I mean... I, I, I wasn't at the stadium for France or for Brazil's first game. I am going later on, so I'm looking forward to seeing them in the flesh. They have a couple of injury issues, obviously, around Neymar, and now it seems like the 59-year-old Dani Alves may have to play in place of Danilo, so it will be interesting to see how they deal with that. But based on what I've seen so far, it is it does look like Brazil and France are the two best teams. Spain, you know, if, if Morata can find some kind of glorious hot-hand streak, maybe Spain... Um, I think they showed against Germany that they're technically so excellent and they can dominate games, but maybe they just lack that bit of cutting edge. It's a Spain um, quarterfinal, I think, isn't it? Brazil-Spain quarterfinal, as far as I yeah. Well, well that, would, that would be spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, those teams, they look a cut above, I have to say. Yeah, so there's going to be loads of good games. We, we definitely, there was a conversation at the start of the show about quality of the World Cup so far, but I think everybody, and somebody, Shifty Lad, I think, made the point that, like, uh, retrospectively, we all remember the good points and blink away the nil-nils. The group stages is not about loads and loads and loads of good quality moments. It's about making sure the best teams reach the round of last 16 and that maybe some jeopardy in the final group stage game, but that we mm. want the best teams in the round of last 16 and the quarterfinals so that those games are the ones that produce the all-time classics. Oh, completely. Like, I mean, there, was, there were upsets in 2018. Remember, in 2002, there were so many upsets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it, it led to kind of slightly disappointing semifinals in, in one sense. But I've also loved it. Okay, so the funny thing is the first time I've ever been to a World Cup or a major tournament. You do miss a lot of it, but just in transit from one match to another. Um, and so I haven't had to sit down and there have, like, I've managed to swerve most of the nil-nil so far, luckily enough. So uh, maybe it's a different experience watching on TV, but I think it's been a really w- good World Cup, even from a from a story point of view. You know, obviously Iran, the scenes with Morocco against Belgium last night, uh, the noise generated by the Saudi Arabia fans, like that upset against Argentina is one of the iconic upsets in World Cup history. So I think the goals per game ratio is definitely down on, on Russia. Um, but at the same time, I think the storylines have been so good. And like you say, I mean, we like those upsets, but at the same time, not too many. really want the big boys through to the last eight yeah. and let them fight it out from there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gav, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thank you. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode.